SITREP goes to New York, where our woman at the UN says diplomacy is the way forward in the Iran crisis. So by discussing this in the Security Council, uh, we can remind Iran of her obligations. Russia and the nuclear treaty are high on the agenda at the NATO summit. And Armed Forces Day, are we doing it the right way? I'm in Midtown Manhattan, outside the offices of the UK Mission to the United Nations. The UN now has 193 member states, including Britain, which is a permanent member of the Security Council. And I've just met Karen Pearce, the UK's permanent representative here, in what's proving to be a very busy week. Here's what she had to say. Iran is, is the big issue of, of the moment. There's the question of the nuclear deal. Uh, which we support. There's also the question of Iran's activities uh, in the Gulf. Uh, what we really need to see is de-escalation uh, and we need to uh, find a diplomatic way uh, of being able to move this issue forward. Uh, but we share the Americans' concerns uh, about the attacks on the tankers. That's the context. Uh, what can the UN do? There are various Security Council resolutions, uh, principally 2231, uh, calling on Iran to do certain things, uh, both within the nuclear deal uh, and also as regards regional stability and security. Uh, so by discussing this in the Security Council, uh, we can remind Iran of her obligations under that resolution. When you talk about the situation needing to be de-escalated, when you have the Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt saying that the UK would consider supporting America should they carry out any strikes on Iran, that's not de-escalation, is it? Uh, well, you have to remember that that's the position we would normally uh, adopt in response to uh, crises of this type. Uh, the Foreign Secretary is restating uh, the British government's position. Uh, we have ourselves uh, been clear with Iran in private uh, that they should not be escalating uh, the tensions in the Gulf. Uh, and were they to kill uh, Westerners, for example, uh, that would be a very serious step. A British Foreign Office Minister, Dr. Morrison, has just been in Tehran uh, in the last few days, uh, and he has been making these points to the Iranians, uh, but he has also been putting the emphasis on de-escalation and on diplomatic ways forward. Because what happens next in Iran could have implications for the whole of the region. Uh, well, that's true, but the remedy is in Iran's own hands. Iran does not have to conduct uh, the destabilizing activities she conducts in Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, and now in, in the Gulf. Um, Iran could uh, make herself uh, much more part of the community of nations. Uh, as the UK, uh, you know, we entirely accept that Iran has legitimate security needs, she has legitimate defense needs, uh, she has a role in this region, uh, but too often the way Iran defends her interests uh, is about destabilization uh, rather than about stabilization. To talk about a nearby country, Yemen, you have said that it's like a test case for the UN. What happens in Yemen? How so? Uh, well, Yemen is the biggest uh, humanitarian uh, disaster the UN has seen. 
uh, with um, almost 14 million people uh, at risk of famine. And at the same time, you have a very uh, protracted conflict uh, that has been going on for two years or so uh, at an intense pace uh, without either side uh, being able to win militarily. Uh, so a political solution is very badly needed. The UN is in the lead on that political solution uh, and they managed to get an agreement at Stockholm uh, at the end of last year, uh, principally concerning a ceasefire uh, and movement and access through the port uh, and um, governance of, of Hodeida. Uh, so we need that to hold. Uh, so we need all parties to respect that ceasefire uh, and work with the UN in implementing it. Sometimes the aid is restricted in the people it's getting to, and that is largely uh, the responsibility of the Houthis. Uh, and we need all sides to support the UN envoy in starting the political process. Only last week, the High Court ruled that the UK had made unlawful arms sales to Saudi Arabia, which is bombing Yemen. The UK finds itself in quite a contradictory position, doesn't it? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Just on the court case, the court found against the government in one of three counts. Uh, so the government is disappointed by this, uh, but will now be considering its position on whether or not there are grounds for appeal. Uh, we do have very strict uh, procedures for arms sales uh, to countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, and as I say, the court uh, found against the government uh, more on an issue of process, uh, but the government respects the court uh, and will be considering uh, whether or not to appeal. Uh, the coalition is not conducting airstrikes at the moment because there is a ceasefire uh, in place. Uh, I think the important thing, as military listeners will know well, is that IHL, International Humanitarian Law, is upheld. And that means the uh, principles of distinction, proportionality uh, and necessity uh, wherever uh, IHL is breached, there is an investigation uh, by the coalition into how that came about, uh, whether or not someone is at fault, uh, and in the occasions where someone has been found at fault, uh, there has been punishment. That was Karen Pierce, the UK's permanent representative to the United Nations, speaking to me in New York earlier this week. Well, I'm joined now, as usual, by our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, in the early part of that interview, she said that Iran should really take part in de-escalation measures and should be much more part of the community of nations. Can you see that happening? Well, I mean, saying Iran can be part of the community of nations in that region, Iran does a lot to disturb the community of nations exactly. in, in, in that region. There's nothing you can do about it except in that region. And that is why, for example, the, the, uh, 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 the uh, Oman uh, sent an ambassador into sea uh, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei um, a couple of days ago and said, listen, is there anything we can bring this about? And so don't ignore the possibility of regional, not conclusions, but regional help, help in this. But the, the main thing is, you know, this is an American story, isn't it? And if another dr drone goes down, and everyone's flying them at the moment, some of them armed, A6 missiles clapped onto a drone, if that goes down, or doesn't, or it's used, then you, you change the pattern immediately. Um, but 
It's interesting that the Americans are starting to put the screws on Ayatollah Ali Khamenei himself. With the sanctions they've announced. With sanctions on him personally. And he's got a fortune, supposedly, according to the CIA, of 95 billion, not million, 95 billion dollars. How much difference would the sanctions make? Uh, uh, You start screwing into that. You do that as a personal thing. But the most important part of it is that Khamenei, the Ayatollah, actually, he's the guy that funds the Revolutionary Guards. And it's the Revolutionary Guard commander is actually doing most of the work in actually destabilizing in three particular places at the moment. And this is all coming on the day, we're talking about this, that Iran is expected to exceed the limitations of its uranium enrichment, breaking uh, the nuclear deal. Yeah, it is. And also, that, but but to do that doesn't mean to say you're going to start putting bigger nuclear warheads on the end of missiles, because they need that part of it. I mean, very much need that part of it for the uh, for, for, for so-called peaceful uses. For example, uh, oil stations, uh, nuclear-powered stations, they need that uh, that technology they're using. They use some of that te- technology not in nuclear processes, but in conventional processes as well. So uh, let's not ignore that. Iran, which is going bust, which has got a political argument going on among the, uh, among the Ayatollahs, Ayatollahs anyway, has got a... St- spent a lot of time work talking to his own people, saying what we are doing is good for you in the end. Otherwise, there's not going to be people on the streets demanding a revolution, but it's close to it. And on the subject of Yemen and arms sales by the UK to Saudi Arabia, she said that wasn't a conflict of interest. It wasn't contradictory, the UK's position, given that uh, High Court ruling recently that the arms sales were unlawful. Listen, Liam Fox, the minister, has said, OK, we will cancel for the moment or postpone any new uh, certificates that we can sell further arms to Saudi Arabia. But this is a temporary arrangement, presumably. Well, maybe it's a temporary arrangement, but I've never heard the minister say that thing before since the, the government of uh, Margaret Thatcher. And so there is, they've got to consider what to be doing. And they've also got themselves a new prime minister coming up, or we have. And it may be the new prime minister with a new foreign secretary, with a new... Uh, with 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 the new chancellor or whatever, we're going to have a different view. It is a tight moment for British. Uh, the British don't like spotlights on their arms sales thing, mm. and at the moment, you know, four uh, percent of British arms sales go into that in, into that area. Go into, into do, Saudi do, do Arabia. Do you see the situation at the moment in terms of the pause in the new contracts for arms sales as as simply that a pause for the moment? I can't see how it can be anything else but a pause. But the pause has got to get to a point. The the rate of ordinance that's being used at the moment is enormous. But also it's the it, it's 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 the legislation that allows civilians to go on contract to the Saudi Arabians. Uh, that's very important. Mm. That has to be renewed. People's contracts have to be renewed every six months. And so I don't. Think think they can just sit back and say, well, that's what we did. We'll wait till it goes quiet, and then we'll just carry on as normal. Well, interestingly, um, that wasn't all Karen Pearce had to say. Uh, the UK's permanent representative to the United Nations also talked about reform of the UN, uh, better ways to do UN peacekeeping. And she gave a, a bit of a revelation during the interview that she did, as a younger person, want to be a, a fighter jet pilot. We'll be hearing more from her next week in part two of that interview from New York. Uh, stay with us, Christopher. Still to come, what do servicemen and women really think about Armed Forces Day? And the Labour Party says it wants to raise forces pay. NATO defence ministers have been meeting in Brussels this week. Top of the agenda once again is Russia. Rob Olver is at NATO headquarters. Hi Rob, why is Moscow causing the alliance so much concern now? 
Well, hello, Kate. The United States and now NATO say that Russia has violated an agreement it signed in 1987 under the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Washington and Moscow agreed to scrap all their nuclear and conventional ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometres. The problem is that Russia's nuclear-capable SSC-8 missile system has a range of around 2,000 kilometres and therefore breaches the INF Treaty. Washington has said it will scrap the agreement unless Russia dismantles the missiles by the 2nd of August. NATO supports America and says Russia must comply or the alliance will be forced to respond. Now, quite what that response will be is not clear. So far, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has uh, mentioned only unnamed deterrence measures, more military exercises and increasing surveillance. So all we can do uh, is wait and see Uh, what could become a crisis. And Rob, both Britain and America have new defence secretaries and this has been their first NATO meeting. Yes, and uh, for Gavin Williamson's successor, Penny Mordaunt, um, it could easily be her first and last meeting here. The next time NATO defence ministers gather, Britain will have a new prime minister um, who could quite possibly choose someone else to fill the defence portfolio. For now, though, Penny Mordaunt is the person in charge. Here she has pledged that the new Queen Elizabeth-class carriers and F-35s, F-35s will be part of NATO's new readiness plan which means that they will always be ready to deploy within 30 days. The new Defence Secretary is also monitoring events in the Gulf ever since the United States pulled out of a 2015 nuclear deal. Relations with Iran, as we've just been hearing, have nosedived. Oil tankers blown up and a drone shot out of the sky have almost led to US airstrikes. President Trump still threatens military action against Iran. The UK already has forces in Bahrain, where the Type 23 frigate HMS Montrose is based. Four Royal Navy mine hunters also operate in the Gulf. But the message from Penny Mordaunt is uh, to seek a diplomatic solution, and that's also what her newly appointed American counterpart thinks. Mark Esper is a former army officer who served for several years in Italy. Uh, He was also in a unit that was part of the British-led Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, the ARC. Now he's Washington's newly appointed acting defence secretary. His firm hope is that conflict with Tehran remains nothing more than a war of words. Uh, This is not Iran versus the United States, he said. This is Iran certainly versus the region and arguably the broader global environment. So we all need to work together. And finally, Rob, NATO is about to head to the final frontier. Yes, well, uh, this is the alliance's first ever space policy, which is being agreed today in Brussels. One small step that could turn out to be a giant leap. NATO defence ministers have come to Brussels to agree a policy on space. It's expected to be declared uh, an official military domain at NATO's London summit in December. And this all follows President Trump's decision in February to launch a US space force. But don't expect uh, Alliance star troopers just yet. The objective of a NATO space command will be to defend military satellites now orbiting the planet. And uh, India, for example, is one country that's tested anti-satellite missiles. If NATO's relevance is sometimes questioned, going into space may prove it still has the right stuff. Rob Olver in Brussels, thank you very much. Um, Christopher. Listen, that, that 
this this thing about the alliance and the arms control uh, treaty, you've got to be very careful here. You know, Americans say, well, the SSC-8 missiles violate the thing. Well, they fi- they yes, they do violate the thing if, 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 if you're talking simply on how far they can go. But the protocols within the INF treaty have things such as you can only fly at a certain height at certain speeds because they are, you know, like cruise missiles. And the Russians aren't violating on those bases alone, so they can mm. always get out of it. The other thing is that the Americans have put in their air defense uh, missiles and the Russians said, you mustn't do that. Uh, you mustn't have those, and you've got them in f- former near-abroad countries, i.e. former allies of Russia, and that's the beginning of it. But right at the top of this is that is, is that Donald Trump is experimenting with the idea of putting small nuclear warheads uh, on, a, on, a, on a missile called a WS-76, which is a short-range missile, and that's what they think, uh, the Russians think, will be coming into Europe. And these are a lot of concerns of these for, the, for, for America's own, own allies. And Christopher, on the subject of Russia, we have the G20 summit starting tomorrow in yeah, Osaka. Uh, well, I tell you, it's interesting here, because the person that's there is, 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 is our Prime Minister for the moment, Theresa May, and she has got uh, an idea that she ought to be talking to President Putin. And President Putin, she said, if you talk to him, you find out what he's maybe what he's thinking. But you keep keep things going, and you, you you get a better relationship. Now there are a lot of guys in her own party uh, here in the United Kingdom who are furious, and some of her allies are absolutely furious that she should be talking to Putin because it's been there's been a, a, a tactic uh, which hasn't really worked. You don't talk to him; I mean, you how, isolate him. How, how much kind of impact can this meeting really have given that she is the outgoing prime minister uh she's the outgoing prime minister but you know it's not just the prime minister that meets as you know when there's a one-to-one meeting there's probably 14 people on either side and it's that 13 people on either side who are going to keep relations going whether whoever is prime minister whoever is uh, foreign secretary and whoever is meeting on a casual basis within nato which is reviving its idea of having russian officials attend nato meetings now labor is promising to improve forces pay it's one of five pledges they say a labor government would make to support service personnel and their families the announcement comes just ahead of armed forces day shadow defense secretary near griffith says it's clear something needs to be done we have seen the morale of our armed forces absolutely plummet since 2010 and the first thing that they would say to you is pay. Well according to House of Commons Library Research, Labour says the public sector pay cap coupled with inflation mean that army private starting salary has actually gone down by 5.8% compared with 2010. That's a fall of £1,200. Well Neil Griffiths says they'll put that right. We have made a very clear pledge that I've agreed with our Treasury team how we're going to fund it, that we really want to make sure our armed forces pay keeps up with inflation. They've been subject to the public sector pay cap. Well, Labour's remaining four pledges are for decent housing for forces and their families, to consult on creating a representative body similar to the Police Federation, to end privatisation and to support forces' children, addressing, they say, the particular challenge of frequent school moves. Uh, Christopher, Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, usually quiet about the military, isn't he? Well, it's a good thing to get onto at the moment because you've got, for example, Jeremy Hunt, who's one of the, you know, the candidates to be prime minister. He's making a point of putting up defence spending on a huge force to, to have it a regular. So start. he says. Well, yeah, but we've got two percent agreed at the moment, and two point five is not hard to do, even if you don't do it. 
So that's it. That's rather important. But it's also what sort of percentage you sh- you'll be able to do when you've got the, the you know the, the 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 bankers, the Brexit bankers, sort of start marching in and put on the dark glasses and say we've got to cut all these uh, expenses. The important thing is what they are doing, what Labour Party is doing, is not a big political move. It is a reasonable move because every single report, every single, uh, the House of Commons Defence Committee, for example, their reports and their analyses, which haven't been overpowering, they haven't sort of been particularly radical, saying if you want to do something about recruiting, and the armed forces are in such stock about recruiting at the moment. I mean, there are thousands down at the moment. If you want to do something, you've got to make it mightily attraction, attractive. And one of the reasons where you do that is say, not so much that we just pay, but there are other things, allowances which you can get, facilities that you can get. I mean, if you took somebody around some of the army, especially the army accommodation at the moment, say, is it going to be fun? You're going to live here. Or don't worry about the green. We're thinking of having that painted. Or is it slime? You know, that is true. I mean, people become Mm. quite cynical about the accommodation. That is not the way, not so much to put people into the forces, but to keep them there. They'll stay there because the the pay, the circumstances and the allowances, for example, are better than they would find outside. Now, on Saturday, the National Armed Forces Day event takes place. This year in Salisbury, it's the 11th year of Armed Forces Day, which grew out of Veterans Day. Tim Cooper has been looking back at the history of the event. Hello and welcome to central London. All day people have been gathering here to pay tribute to the veterans of conflicts past. June 2006 and the first Veterans Day. Veterans Minister Tom Watson. Today is a time of celebration. You know, we've got veterans, millions of veterans up and down the country playing a role in their communities and in society, a very positive role, and they don't get rewarded enough. The event has definitely found favour with the veterans themselves. I think it's an excellent idea, young veterans as well as old old codgers. I think it's a brilliant idea. People have given up so much of their lives. It looks like Veterans Day is starting to take hold of the public imagination. The country is waking up to the fact that those who serve in the armed forces, either now or in the past, are to be valued and recognised and appreciated. Lord Dannett talking to BFBS in Blackpool in 2008 when he was Chief of the General Staff. In 2009, the name changed to Armed Forces Day, a celebration of the military serving and veterans. The national event travelled the UK. As they wound their way down Stirling's cobbled streets, the public turnout was simply overwhelming, with people who felt they had to be there to show their support. They do so much for us, behind the scenes that you never actually, you only hear about the bad things, you never hear about the good things. I think it just highlights and emphasises the importance of having uh, British Armed Forces. They served our country um, for us. Smaller events took place all over the world. And why do you think it's important to mark Armed Forces Day out here in Afghanistan? Well, we work with the military day in, day out. It'd be nice to give something back, you know. Members of the royal family take the salute at the national event's showpiece parade. His Royal Highness the Duke of York in Guildford in 2015. Just by seeing what support they have by people turning out for today and it's across the country they should recognize that they are valued and that they are thanked then prime minister david cameron is it's a great moment for the british public to say how much we admire the work our armed forces do here in britain and all around the world today a gun salute from soldiers of the royal artillery 
parading through the streets of Liverpool, the bands and personnel of the armed forces. They... Prime Minister Theresa May. It's great that we can recognise the work that all our armed forces do, as I say, both here and across the world. They do a fantastic job for us and we should be grateful to them all. This year, see Salisbury take centre stage. A thank you to the military personnel who helped in the wake of the Novichok outrage. Around the country, smaller events. I served here in Northern Ireland. I never thought I would see events such as this. Sias Elwood talking in Northern Ireland a few days ago. 14 years of celebrating and commemorating those who serve. Well, that was Tim Cooper looking back at the history of Armed Forces Day. Well, is having one day of the year centred on one particular town or city the right way to raise awareness of people working in the military? And if it's not, how could this be done differently? Andy Wosley is an RAF veteran who served in Afghanistan. He joins us now. Andy, your thoughts on Armed Forces Day? I think it was interesting there to hear David Cameron talking about how much we in the public appreciate the Armed Forces. Only this week we've heard from Safra actually that there are some fairly sobering statistics about recognition for the armed forces. Fully a third of people say that they don't support the act, uh, actively support the armed forces. That rises to nearly half of people aged 16 to 34. So if Armed Forces Day is about increasing public recognition for or appreciation for the armed forces, I'd say it's done a pretty poor job. I, I imagine a lot of people listening will think if you want to show how you appreciate us, give us better accommodation, better better pay, those kind of things perhaps. Is, well, that, you know, is that fair? I, th I think more than that as well. We have a national event for armed forces day every year this year in Salisbury uh, next year it's in Scarborough last year it was in Llandudno uh, a lot of armed forces personnel turn out for those events I think they would probably say if you really want to celebrate us give us a long weekend and not a working weekend mm. <laughs> so should it be done differently do you think well I think that what what ought to be done is to to really focus on um, some bigger events some bigger national events I simply don't think it is enough to, to really celebrate the armed forces if you're going to stage an event in somewhere like Cleethorpes with all due apologies to the good people of Cleethorpes <laughs> uh, why are these events not being staged in Manchester why why is there no it wasn't liverpool it's been in Liverpool, it's been in some big big cities, it's not been in Glasgow for example, it's not been in Newcastle, it's not been in, in some of these huge regional centres where you stand a good chance of getting some really serious media visibility for these events. Christopher Lee. No, you can do it, you know, they do it once a year and they've been picking a different town every year for the past, what, I don't know, decade maybe. Um, you can't get everywhere, but the thing, the thinking at the moment is that it may be not to have the one big Scarborough or Salisbury or whatever, is that you build up, sometimes through the reserve forces, but you build up in local towns and you have it across the country by sort of putting the flags out and the bands out uh, in each county, for example. So you want 50, uh, 50 Armed Forces Day all on the same day. Make the whole uh, the the whole country shiver to the excitement of the whole thing but there is there is well, a point well we can do it for royal weddings can't we so so why not for, for people who deliver so much extraordinary work for the public I think there's another part of it oh, by the way the, the thing about the 30 was it 30% or something like don't support the armed forces 36% 36% wasn't that actually it's a bit misleading as it sounds as if you're actually saying actually I don't agree with the armed forces no it's that they didn't actively they, support the armed forces yeah, they it's, don't it's, put not, anything it's not in, people they don't put anything in the banners. box or they got anything any, anything to do there now I think this idea that if you make it a national day and just being aware it's remarkable how little you have to do other people have to do more but how little you have to do to make it a, anything a national event 
Mm. You know, you, you, you start doing the, 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 the visual thing with the armed forces and you can do it, make armed forces weak even. I don't disagree. I think the question is who is doing the celebrating. And my distinct impression from uh, working on the first Armed Forces Day in Kandahar Airfield and arranging yeah. for a Chinook to fly, a very tired army photographer to fly the flag over Kandahar, it seems to me that the scale of effort seems to be exercised by the armed forces to celebrate so the armed forces. So it just seems like extra work. Is that, is that how, so is that how that, you that, experienced that's it? That's certainly how I experienced it. So did you yeah, begrudge I can't it? Speak everybody um <laughs> well I, I obviously i love my time in the armed forces um but yeah i i think sometimes with the scale of uh, of effort that's going on in the armed forces the number of deployments that the armed forces are facing uh, an extra working weekend weekend is not always welcome but i suppose when you're in kandahar you're not going to get the adulation of the public which must obviously make people feel rather better than you it's did limited, it? i tell you what you do it you do it on this idea if you do a national national proper national armed forces week you start to gear it to things like recruiting you start to have themes that you can get at and you have sort of a good motives to do it. And I mean, there is something sad sometimes that you say Armed Forces Day and you go along to, it doesn't have to be Scarborough, and you see yet another Red Arrows uh, aircraft there and you think, oh, aren't they small? <laughs> um, and, and then you see some other, I don't know, armoured vehicle there. And then you see a couple of bands which usually go the wrong... One of them goes the wrong way. Or well, gets... I agree. And you know what actually improves public sympathy for the armed forces is seeing soldiers fighting wildfires on Saddleworth Moor. It's yeah. seeing RAF Chinooks helping to repair burst river banks. It's seeing the Royal Navy deliver aid overseas, not big, just about marching. Big, gentlemen, we must, we must leave it there for now. Just before, by a soldier. We shall leave it there. Just before we go, <laughs> SITREP has won an award. I'd like you to tell you that. It's the best regularly scheduled talk programme at the International Radio Awards in New York. So if you want to listen to this programme again, you can just uh, sign up for the podcast, search for SITREP wherever you download your podcasts. Until this time next week, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again with more. Bye for now. Bye for now.